Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains references to violence against children. As well, there are references to domestic violence and violence against women. If you've experienced violence and need immediate or ongoing help, contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732. If this content affects you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, how forensic death investigators are helping in Australia's fight against domestic violence. When we're talking about family homicide, we're really trying to understand what is the nature of the relationship and what is the nature of the behaviours that are being exhibited. Associate Professor Lyndall Bajaya is the research lead of the Violence Investigation Research and Training Unit at the Department of Forensic Medicine. Lyndall spent decades investigating death reports and identifying patterns to understand how and then why people are dying or being killed. In the first few weeks of 1999, when I was doing my my honours thesis, um, a young woman called Rachel Barber disappeared and they were looking for her. There was some some speculation about whether she was just a, a teenage runaway or had she gone off with her boyfriend. She, she was um, studying full-time at the dance factory in Melbourne. She was apparently a very talented young dancer. Um, it became clear over time, sort of following an investigation into her, her disappearance, it turned out that she'd actually been lured to the house of her former babysitter, who was very young herself, only 19 years old at the time, who had got a little bit of a odd obsession with Rachel based on her basically being everything that she wanted to be. Rachel was, you know, um, athletic and popular, um, beautiful, an amazing dancer, and this wasn't something that, that the babysitter felt that, that she was in her life. And became quite obsessed with her, lured her to her apartment under the guise of of saying, look, I need you to, to help me out with a psychological study that I'm doing. I'll, I'll pay you $100. And for Rachel at the time, she was, you know, studying full time. So $100 was probably sounded pretty good to her and wasn't something she was, you know, going to be able to do as a, as a full time dancer. Obviously, the family didn't think she was just a runaway. So how did the police go about investigating Rachel's disappearance? The investigators were trying to go back and trace Rachel's steps on the day that she disappeared. They were able to identify from phone calls in the Barber family's phone records. There was also a witness who had seen Rachel on the tram the night of her death and had noticed that she was with another woman. So the detectives were then able to locate Robinson's apartment and actually found her quite unwell at her home, which was, which I think police later believe was probably brought on by, by the stress of the murder and, and the aftermath and the things that she was planning to do. And while they were doing um, the search of the apartment, they actually found Caroline's journal, 
which had a lot of information that was quite incriminating about Rachel's disappearance. It talked explicitly about Rachel and how she might have been murdered, how she planned to dispose and cover up what she had done, including um, the location of where um, she was going to take to take Rachel and also how she was going to cover up some of the forensic evidence that might have been at the scene in terms of cleaning up some of the things that had happened. They obviously had her journals, which were quite odd, but did they have a motive for why she killed Rachel? What they were able to piece together from some other information that they found was she actually had an application for a birth certificate in Rachel's name and another application for a $10,000 bank loan. At the time, the investigators started to form the belief that Caroline's intention was to assume Rachel's identity and live the life that she thought Rachel was was leading under um, Rachel's identity. What later became apparent was that Caroline was actually very unwell and had developed, uh, I think, what the judge described as a, as an abnormal and almost obsessive interest in Rachel. And although she was, you know, able to to behave quite, you know, high functioning, um, and and hold a job and do things that you know, normal young women would be would be doing um, around that age. I think her, um, the way she felt about Rachel um, combined with, you know, the psychological illnesses that she was experiencing, I think came together and led to this, this terrible murder. With her um, mental conditions or disorders, was she fit to stand trial? My understanding is that she was diagnosed with a a personality disorder after the murder, was found fit to stand trial and she was found guilty and was sentenced to 20 years in jail, of which she spent um, 15 before she was was released on parole in 2015. In terms of your research with women who kill, obviously Caroline was one instance and one motive for killing. Did your findings, looking back over cases of women killing, did you find any difference between their motives and reasons for killing in comparison to men? No, not really. And that, and that was the thing that was, I think, probably the most interesting um, finding out of the research was that, you know, there were cases where women were murdering other women because of conflict within their intimate partner relationships, which we, we obviously see with men, men killing women. We also saw cases of, of conflict between friends and acquaintances um, and things like that that going wrong. So not not particularly unusual. We see men falling out with acquaintances or having disputes about drugs or money and things like that. Um, had a couple of those kinds of cases. But largely when we looked at that small cohort of women um, who'd murdered other women, some of the themes and some of the motives were quite similar to why men would kill other men and why men would kill women. So I guess in terms of, of what we could take away from that from that research, some of the sort of more universal interventions that we've tried and the government and services have tried to put in place to prevent violence, I think would probably equally apply to women murdering other women as they would, you know, to, to other relationships that where we see homicides occurring. It's interesting because we often think of men being killers more towards men, men being stronger physically, 
more combative. But if women are killing women, it's, it's counterintuitive. We kind of think there has to be another reason. So it's really interesting that you didn't necessarily see a difference in motives because we assume and presume there will be very, very different reasons women kill. Mm. And I, I think sometimes motive can be a bit different from circumstance. I mean, sometimes um, in a conflict situation, especially um, if the parties have consumed alcohol or drugs or there's a people are very emotional or very upset, things can escalate really quickly, especially when you have a lethal object that's close to hand. I remember this one case, it was really, really sad between two women. And I remember her saying to the police afterwards, she was like, oh, well, she's not dead, is she? Like, she's all right. Like, just really had no concept of, and this woman had been stabbed multiple times. And so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just a single, a single stab wound, but she really had no, there was no premeditation in what she had done. It was simply a conflict that had got out of hand and she really had no concept of how significantly she had injured um, her partner. It was, it was really, really terrible. That was a domestic violence situation. That was an intimate partner violence. Yeah, but there were others that were a bit more premeditated. Like when you have a very small sample size, it makes it really difficult to identify commonalities across cases within the small group that you have. But there were, were definitely some things that were very similar to how we see homicides occurring in other relationships and, and among, you know, among men. You've also looked at intimate partner slash family violence. Can you go through the types of family violence that there are and the differences? So I think probably the area that we probably most associate with family homicide is homicides that occur between current or former intimate partners. And that probably does, you know, make up the majority of family homicides that, that we see at least in Victoria and across Australia and internationally. So that's really been the relationship that has had a lot of attention in research and in a lot of the interventions. We also see parents that will be killing their children. That's probably the second biggest group. But we also see quite a number of deaths where adult children are killing their adult parents. And that that's quite a different scenario than the, the intimate partner and the you know, parent killing young child scenario. There's often, um, you know, some very, uh, very different dynamics going on there. There could be issues around finance and property. There could just be some ongoing conflict in that family that has has been in place or has occurred for a very long time since childhood. And um, we sometimes have, you know, unfortunate situations where a child or an adult child might be very psychologically unwell. Um, and their adult parent is caring for them. And um, so they're, because they're being cared for by their parent and they're the ones that are, you know, looking after their day-to-day care, they can, they can often find themselves being killed when that child enters a, a psychotic rage or, or has a, a psychotic episode. So we have had a number of those, those cases as well, but they can be quite different to what we're seeing in intimate partner and, and parent-child. And then occasionally we'll see homicides among siblings, um, homicides that involve um, grandparents. But then we also sometimes see these not quite intimate partner homicides, but there'll be the new partner's ex-partner. You know, there'll be some kind of love triangle situation going on. They can sometimes be really hard to to categorise into a neat group because they 
um, I guess they have the features of an intimate partner homicide, but that relationship isn't quite there. So when we're talking about family homicide, we're really trying to understand what is the nature of the relationship and what is the nature of the behaviours that are being exhibited. What does researching family homicide, what's the goal and what in particular are you looking at? Um, we're really trying to find points of intervention and I guess one of the areas of focus that, that we've taken is to try to identify where are people presenting in the service system. So if we don't actually know that there's violence occurring in a relationship, it makes it really difficult to prevent it. Um, we've had a lot of situations where people have died and nobody has had any idea, no service, no doctor, no specialist family violence, the police, nobody knew that there was violence in the relationship except maybe the next door neighbour. And so it puts that, it puts, we call them bystanders, so it puts family, friends and, and neighbours in a really difficult position to be able to try and help someone um, who is experiencing family violence because sometimes we don't know what to do to help because we're not specialists. Um, there's a lot of um, promotion about encouraging bystanders to try to assist people experiencing family violence. We do have pathways in Victoria for family, friends and even colleagues. Sometimes colleagues at work might know that something like that's going on. So they there are efforts to try and identify and assist people that know people are experiencing family violence to to report it or to try and help. But sometimes people, they don't know what to do and they're also, they're scared of making the situation worse for that person and also scared for themselves. As a GP, I used to see, sometimes I saw the victim of the domestic violence and I saw the partner separately. I found that so difficult because I knew full well that if I disclosed to the the person who was committing the violence that I knew, because they could control themselves. They weren't being violent to me. They weren't being violent at work, outside the home. They were very targeted in their violence and abuse. And if I let them know that I was aware of the violence, I knew I could get their partner killed. You're in the situation where you're seeing the injuries and the wounds and if the victim does not want to get help, does not want you to report, help them leave. I remember one day I actually did this and I sat down and I sort of had to cancel patients in the afternoon because a woman had been almost strangled to death by a partner the night before and obviously that's escalating behaviour. And I sat down for three hours. I found her accommodation for the children. I did all that. And then in the very end, she said, I can't, I have to, to go back because he'll kill my children or he'll, he'll kill me. Like, I have to go back. It's the safest thing to do is to go back. Yep. And there's lots of reasons people stay and we have to try and find ways that women can stay or people can stay in violent relationships in a safe way. Like they, sometimes people don't want to leave because they actually love the person or they don't want to leave because they're scared, or they don't want to leave because they're worried about their children, or they don't want to leave because they will never have financial independence. So there's lots of reasons that people don't leave relationships, and I, and I think that's where it can become a really complex... Um, there's not just a... It, it's not an easy answer to say, why don't you just leave? I'm, I'm not sure that that's, that's something that all people that experience violence feel that they can do. So the, in the work that I try to do is I'm trying to understand... What are the trajectories? 
what are the constellation of factors that people experience in the lead up to family homicide and is there a can we identify a point in time or certain events um, or certain things that are coming up that create a really um, risky time or, you know, a, a time for a person who's at serious risk of a fatal outcome and, and can we intervene? Is there something that we can do? But firstly, we actually need to know that that's happening for people. Um, so unless we have ways of identifying people who are experiencing family violence, there I'm sure there's still a lot of people who experience violence a, that don't recognise that they are, and B, are unwilling to disclose it to uh, officially or even to family, friends and, and colleagues. They're just, um, and especially some of those more subtle forms of violence. So, you know, violence can have incredibly de- detrimental impact on someone, even if it's not physical. I remember we had this wonderful expert come and give evidence for us um, in one of our investigations that we were doing at the coroner's court to say that some of that emotional and psychological abuse is actually more damaging to someone than than the physical violence. So it it's damaging in so many ways and, you know, sometimes police can't see it or the person who's experienced can't see it, um, other people can't see it. You know, some of these things are happening behind closed doors and, and, and no one's really aware of what's happening for that person. Often people think forensic means crime, murder, violence, but forensics actually has to do with the law. So what sort of influence or effect, when you're dealing with coroner's inquests, can your research and your data make? Um, probably the best example of how research can support the legal or forensic forensic medicine or forensics investigations is looking back through similar cases and trying to pull together similar cases that have occurred over time. It sounds awful to say, but deaths from unnatural causes are considered relatively rare outcomes compared to something, say, like cancer or heart disease. So we're not seeing anywhere near the the number of people die from injury um, and violence that we would say in those other those other areas. But the people that die from injury and violence tend to be in their youngest years. So injury and violence is a leading cause of death for people that are under 44 years old. So it's fairly it's a fairly significant public health issue. And in Victoria, we're pretty lucky that we have a, a coroner's system that has been very focused on prevention outcomes for a very long time, since the 1985 Coroner's Act. So they had some pretty strong vision about how they wanted their prevention function to be discharged. And they were very, very encouraging early on about using research for informing the recommendations. So one of the things um, that we did quite early on was have a look at some of the drowning drownings that were occurring in Victoria. So we had a look at all of the drownings and identified that, you know, in addition to um, a, a large number of young children that were drowning in public private swimming pools and spas and bathtubs and dams. We were also seeing quite a number of occupants of small recreational vessels that were drowning. So we embarked on a project to support some of the investigations that were underway to go back in time and identify all of the cases where a recreational boating death had occurred 
And we had a look at the factors that were about the person, what was the activity that they were engaged in, what waterway were they on, were they wearing a life jacket, were they carrying a life jacket like they were required to, did they have a mechanism to raise an alarm um, if they had entered the water, did they let someone know where they were going, did they tell someone when they thought they would be back, did they check the weather conditions. So all sort of, you know, the known safety issues that you would have in any kind of boating um, event. And what we found was that we had um, some trends when we're looking at those cases. We we found that what was happening was that people were carrying the life jackets that they were required to carry, but they weren't wearing them. And we knew from some of the other research that we were doing with commercial fishermen that the reason um, people in vessels didn't want to wear life jackets was because they were quite, the ones that were available were quite bulky and uncomfortable. So they weren't things that you could wear um, for a long period of time, um, particularly out in the sun, you would get hot. Um, they'd get a bit scratchy. Um, they were very, very bulky and they were a bit nasty to wear after they'd gotten wet. Um, so people just didn't want to wear them because they weren't comfortable. Um, they would be very good about... Yeah, practical. Putting, yeah, exactly. Um, really good about putting them on their, their children that were under under 10, but adults were just not, not going to wear them. And so we found that what was happening was that that people were entering the water sort of suddenly and unexpectedly and they had, didn't have a life jacket on. And it's actually really difficult or pretty impossible to put a life jacket on when you're already in the water. And once they were in the water, you know, often the boat was capsized, so it was upside down or they couldn't get back into the vessel. So they had no mechanism of letting anybody know that they were in trouble. So no, um, they weren't able to access their radios or um, things like that. And if, if that had happened really early on, during their boating outing, people wouldn't even know they were missing. And, you know, the water in Victoria is quite cold, so people would succumb to hypothermia quite quickly. So when we had a look at those factors and identified those and had cases that were active um, going through an investigation, we were able to show those trends to the coroner and and show them the research that we had done. Um, We had a strong collaboration on the research with Maritime Safety Victoria, who were wonderful in in appearing at inquests and talking about some of the issues and some of the barriers to implementing um, stronger laws on life jacket wearing. And so I think during that consultation and I guess as we were consulting with the in the commercial fishing industry about their use of life jackets, the industry were actually developing much more comfortable life jackets, ones that were things that you could wear while you were doing commercial fishing. So they were lightweight. They could be inflated once you were in the water. Um, you know, they were, you know, quite comfortable and so there was this possibility of finding a solution for these bulky um, life jackets that were in place. So coroners ended up making a number of recommendations that there be a mandatory requirement for wearing of of life jackets in certain vessels and under certain conditions. The Maritime Safety Victoria went out to the community and consulted on what some of the barriers to that might be, what some of the concerns might be and they ended up implementing the legislation um, soon after. I think it came in in about 2005. So we watched the number of deaths over time just to see how that was, how they were tracking. Um, There were other interventions that were put in place to support um, the life jacket legislation. So they had some um, public awareness campaigns um, and also had some safety offices down in popular boating locations to encourage people and some kind of fine if people weren't seen to be wearing them. So there was that combination of the legislation, public awareness and enforcement, which 
if we go back to injury prevention theory, that's that's the sort of multifaceted intervention that we want we want to be seen. There's never there's never there's, it's unusual to have one intervention that's going to fix a particular problem. So we watch these um, these deaths and monitored these deaths over over time for about five years, and then performed a before and after study to see how effective that that regime was, and we found we observed a a, a very significant reduction in the number of deaths over time. Um, I think at one point we had a year that where we had no no deaths of recreational boating occupants, which was like it was just amazing. It was such an amazing feeling to to feel that you've done something that you know contributed to people not dying. But but I think what made me even more excited was to hear um, anecdotally through Maritime Safety Victoria that people had actually been rescued um, because and survived because they were wearing the life jackets. So that was yeah that was a really pleasing outcome I think for everyone and really demonstrated to me the value of coroners having evidence-based information for their investigations and and coroners to have that independence to be able to make recommendations that can change the laws and the policies and the education enforcement that we have and and what was most lovely about that example was that Maritime Safety Victoria um actually really strongly acknowledged the coroner's court and the, and the contribution that coroners had made um, to that prevention initiative and the and the lives that had been saved which was yeah it was just a really a really nice example you don't I don't think many injury and violence researchers get that experience so I was really pleased to be part of that project how then do you go about doing your research into the family violence for example how do you access information and where do you access it from it really depends on if a person has died or if if they haven't died. So it is a lot easier, I guess, working in the field of of forensics and and having access to ethics committees and knowing that coronial information exists. There is a system that was in put in place around the year two thousand that was really a game changer for collating information about coronial information. So this um, this consortium of, of Institute of Forensic Medicine and, and a couple of Monash University departments were able to establish what's now called the National Coronial Information System. And what they were able to get agreement to do was to um, develop a an internet-based database where all of the the cases that are notified to coroners would be entered into this information system and some of that data would be coded. But the thing that was most useful, I think, for coroners, death investigators and researchers was that um, some jurisdictions would attach the police report, the toxicology report, autopsy report and coroner's findings. So if you were granted access to that system through an, an, an ethics process or other approval process, you were able to find um, similar cases using using coding. Um, so say, for example, um, if you were able to search on a particular age group of people or a particular type of death, um, you were able to identify those cases almost immediately, where back in the day when, when I did my homicide research um, on the women murdering other women, that was a much more complicated process. So it was still computerised, but it, you know, often you would have to have gone back through paper-based records. So that was a really huge breakthrough and a, and a world first for bringing together coroner's information. So that's usually where I would start. If I wasn't inside a coroner's court, that's probably the, the way that I would go about identifying family homicides. 
And, and there's a lot of information that is generated for a family homicide investigation. I mean, of course, it's a crime, so you've got the criminal investigation that is performed and, and that generates a huge amount of information and, and culminates if it makes it to court and there's a, a sentencing outcome. There's a lot of information in the judge's sentencing remarks about the incident and what's happened. And then you, of course, have the coroner's investigation that has a slightly different focus, but also generates a lot of information. So between those two investigations, you end up with a lot of really valuable information that can tell you and help you, I guess, systematically identify the factors that led up to the death. And when you're doing that across a number of cases, that allows you to identify trends and patterns for prevention or for improving justice outcomes. But with family violence where there isn't a death outcome, that's a lot trickier. There's lots of different services that um, people ex who experience violence can present to. So you might end up in hospital, you might present to a specialist family violence service, and it's really not possible at the moment to bring all of that information together in a way that is searchable and it's also nowhere near as detailed as what you would get in, in a criminal or a coronial investigation. So I'm not sure we quite understand non-fatal family violence using existing records in the same way that we could for if someone has, has died. So you don't necessarily know if someone is seeking help from outside groups and whether or not that is successful in helping to prevent deaths. Is there a way of comparing people who have been involved in fatal incidents, family violence, to assess whether they sought help? And is that one way of possibly helping establish whether are these supports and services that are offered are effective? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the mandate of the, of the Family Violence Death Review that is um, positioned within the Coroner's Court of Victoria, that's exactly what they're looking at is, is did, did anybody know that this person was experiencing family violence? Did they present to any services? Um, what support did they get? What advice did they get? What action was taken to support that person? But we just don't have that, that information available for people that haven't died from family violence. And, and the reason that that is is that people are presenting to services for treatment say if they're at a hospital or to receive support and a response for safety planning and, and to, to help them maintain their safety. So, you know, we have a fantastic risk assessment process in, in Victoria, but that information for good reason is really, it's, it's private information. It's highly confidential. If that information got into, um, was made available or be able to be accessed by someone that was using family violence, then that could create a really significant risk of further family violence for that for that person. So I think it's very much a work in progress in terms of how do we bring together information on, on risk at a population level for people that present to services. And there is some work underway to try and do that. It's really difficult and you're probably never going to get the level of detail in a, in a non-fatal case than you would for a fatal case unless, I mean, other studies have done in-depth interviews with people that have been exposed to family violence um, to really get a first-hand account of, of what has happened to them, but really not to the extent that a, a coronal investigation or a criminal investigation would, would go through because you'd only be getting one person's side of the story. You wouldn't be, you know, in a criminal investigation, the sentencing judge will often 
go through a lot of information about the person that's used violence and what their life has been like and what experiences they've had, which is incredibly helpful to try and understand um, what are some of the reasons why people use violence. I, I think that's something that we still need to do a lot of work on. In all your work, have you identified any similarity or any pattern in fatal cases that you could intervene at or could have been intervened at in retrospect? So therefore, can you apply that to people in other situations who are not yet fatal? Yeah. I mean, I think the risk factors for intimate partner homicide are quite well known. We know that if people have been historically exposed to violence either in their current or a, a former relationship, that's a significant risk. We know that um, times of um, actual or pending separation are really important factors for people um, or for violence to escalate. But but I think what what I really want to know the answer to is what has happened to people that that use violence across the life course. So what was their experience when they were young people and, you know, as they became adults and, and what were the things that occurred for them or were important for them or contributed to them using violence. I think I think we still have a long way to go to try and understand their perspective and that's not to give primacy um, to them but they're the people that are using violence. So if we don't understand what the factors are associated with people using violence, then I, I feel like, you know, we're really just responding after it occurs. It would be really great to be able to try and understand from a, a primary prevention perspective, what are the things that happen to people that use violence in their in their early life and as they become adults and, and in their relationships, what is it what is it that happens for them and what what can we do to better support the next generation of of people coming through to make sure that we have that intergenerational change um, in violence. So that's a piece of work I would still really like to do. Look, this has been fascinating and I think that the work you do is incredibly important and prevention, even in terms of crime, death, accidental deaths, deliberate deaths, I think it's the most important thing we can be looking at when we're looking at crime. So thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.